I think I've kind of moved from excitement about how we make the things we live with to moving toward a fascination with how to live with the things that we make. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Educator Central, brought to you by the Learning Solutions Center at Mayo Clinic. I'm Stacy Kraft, an assistant professor of medical education and senior instructional designer at Mayo Clinic. This episode is the sixth installment of our special limited series, Co-Occurrence. This limited series features discussions on and adjacent to AI, and particular interest of this podcast, its intersection with education, science, and development professions. In this series, we are focusing on conversations, exploring AI and related technologies and their possible, probable, and actual impacts on education and the world. So let's take a step back and take this all in. We are living in a time of relentless newness where emerging technologies are rapidly changing and it is challenging us to change the way we live, learn, interact, and think about things. Emerging technological advancements are pushing boundaries and now more than ever in recent history are requiring us to adapt and evolve our perspectives, ideas, and skills at an unprecedented pace. It's a constant state of change, which can be very exciting, but it also comes with uncertainty and the need to develop or refine strategies to navigate with curiosity of the unexpected. In this episode, Scott Dorley is here to help us unpack and examine these challenges and explore related ideas. Scott is a writer, designer, and the creative director at Stanford University's D School. He has overseen everything from books to workspaces to digital products and initiatives focused on the future of learning and design. He co-wrote the book Make Space, How to Set the Stage for Creative Collaboration, and teaches courses in design communication. His work has been featured in museums from San Jose to Holinsky and in publications such as Architecture and Urbanism and the New York Times. Welcome, Scott. Hi, thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. So let's just dive right in and get started. How did you first get interested in learning design and technology? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I mean, I'm generally interested in how the things we make make us think. And learning design and technology, I, that was my graduate degree. And I looked at so many different places to go to grad school and all these weird places within another place. So there's a program called the Interactive Technology Program at NYU in the School of the Arts, in the Tisch School of the Arts. That's like the Performing Arts School. I was looking at this weird little media program in the architecture department at Berkeley. And this program in learning design technology just like really hit home because, uh, you know, if there's anything, I love learning and learning is how we change as people. And so how technology is influencing our learning and then how we change was just really fascinating. I mean, I think I've kind of moved in my career from excitement about how we make the things we live with to moving toward a fascination with how to the, how to live with the things that we make. Yeah, that leads really to the next question I have, which is, you know, you've spoken a lot about this idea of living with the way technology is and the things that we've made in a time where new technology is really not a reality, but it's more of an emerging technology. Yeah, absolutely. I love lingo. Lingo can be so telling. And so somewhere, I think, around the early 2010s, we shifted sort of from new tech or just technology toward 
emerging tech. And I think initially it was meant just to describe things that were not fully formed that were coming onto the scene. But I actually think it also was describing things that just felt a little weird, like technology that didn't feel like normal technology. Now, I'm sure when computers came around, people felt the same way. But for us at that time, I think it was like lab grown meat and, you know, computer brain interfaces. And we didn't really have a word for that weird stuff. The way I'm talking about it, though, and I think the way it's changed over time is, is that it's not just about new, it's about relentlessly new. New and then new on top of new and new on top of new currencies that aren't controlled by countries and computers that think and create. And, you know, it's this constant shifting and change. And I, my point is like the, the emergence is a thing to focus on, you know, the effect and not just the tech is interesting to look at because I think it is really having an impact on us. Yeah. And I, I feel like that word you, well, those relentlessly new, that phrasing that you used is, I don't know, so accurate, relentlessly new, even as something is you see, or you learn about it. And as you're learning about it, you know, that like, it's going to be different in one day, maybe, you know, like, can you yeah. even rely on what you just learned? Right. I see a lot of people making cheat, cheat sheets for like AI and stuff like that. And I think, well, how long, what is the lifespan of this cheat sheet? Right. It, it's probably not very long. I, no, I think that's a brilliant point. Like, what is the lifespan of our reactions? You know, mm -hmm. and the, how much should we invest in those? And then so that puts you in a posture where it's hard to live in a relentless world, right? Mm -hmm. So how we choose to react to that, should we just wait and see what's going to happen? Should we engage it fully and, you know, create that cheat sheet and then create the next cheat sheet and then create the next one? Um, it's a it's a great question. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure totally of the answer. I have some hunches. Maybe we probably shouldn't just wait and see, right? That that's way too passive. But engaging, you know, as relentlessly new as the technology is, I think is exhausting too. So it's probably right. not possible to engage at that level, right? Yeah, um, I think the answer is always both, right? So right. it's a little of each. Yeah. Well, how have you personally been affected from the shift from new technology into emerging technologies? I love that question. And the, the, one of the reasons I really like it is because now you can hear my biases, right? So anyone right. listening to this can be like, take everything I say with, with this grain of salt, which I'll say is it's both exciting and off-putting to me. On the off-putting side, I really love to make things. You know, I'm a writer, I'm a designer, and I do a lot of visual design. And generative AI in particular, as one example of an emerging technology, it really kind of helps you circumvent the making process a little bit. And, you know, I kind of lament if that happens. And I'm not saying it has happened because my interaction with it has been a lot of sort of, um, you're making with it rather than it making for you. But at the very least, it speeds up that process. And it's sort of about finishing rather than doing. And, you know, I feel like there's something lost in that, particularly around learning, because learning is so much about the doing and you learn so much from the doing. The other thing I've seen is, you know, I've been around technology startups and things for 20 years now, and I've watched a lot of 
good intentions kind of go south, you know? And generally, I don't think they go south because the people creating them, at least the ones I've met, aren't concerned or aren't good people. I think they don't quite understand the power of what they're creating until they create it. And then I don't know if they're ill-equipped or the market forces are make it difficult or what happens, but you end up, it, the, the technology kind of runs away from you a little bit. But on the other hand, I work with um, a lot of people who are using generative AI in, in really fascinating ways. So I, I work with a guy named Aaron Huey, who's a National Geographic photographer, and he's mm -hmm. been shooting photos for like 30 years. And some of his photos uh, capture climate change over time. So retreating glaciers, forest fires, and he's taken those images and fed them into AI to create wallpaper patterns mm -hmm. to bring awareness to climate change. And the wallpaper patterns are just gorgeous. And they're clearly not human, mm -hmm. but they do incorporate his work. And so it's this really, it's kind of like a new art form. And you can kind of see these new opportunities showing up and it's really exciting. I do find that my thought process about the emerging generative AI technology, particularly with visual generative AI, is really evolving. I've sort of had to take a step back and think a bit more deeply on concepts I haven't really visited with for a long time, especially around what is fair copyright, intellectual property, and the nature of what is art, art as creation or a concept or an idea rather than a product, which, which I won't follow that rabbit hole because I might never stop. But my point is, these are not necessarily new questions in a broad sense. They have been challenged, examined, determined in different settings many, many years ago, over and over again, but it's still triggering a re-examination of my own thinking. <laughs> I mean, I will say, I do think it's getting us to question everything. And I've had a lot, a lot of arguments actually with folks about IP and, you know, should there even be IP? Well, if there is IP, should it go to the company that's making the tool or, you know, like, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. or to the people who created the content that the tool is made off of? It, it really calls into question almost anything because I do think we need to like quickly work out the, the all the things that this is bringing into question. So with that in mind, how do you <laughs> respond to the skeptics who claim that AI is just a fad and reject the whole emerging technologies narrative? Because I have I have met people who feel that way. No doubt about it. And I, I will say like one of the things I try to practice is sort of a consciousness of my own ignorance. Um, and I do have a pretty good relationship with doubt. So I always try to assume that what I'm saying could be wrong and probably is. In this case, though, <laughs> I understand where that's coming from, and I don't think it's quite on target. I, the idea that these technologies are not going to be impactful, I think, is not something I doubt. Let's put it that way. What I will say, though, is being skeptical of hype, I think, is, is a good idea. Because a lot of the hype comes from the people making the stuff. And of course, they want to hype it up. And while in a lot of cases, I think it's probably overhyped in the short term, in the long term, I think it's probably hyped appropriately or underhyped, frankly. So, I, I mean, I give an example like crypto. So, blockchain turning into cryptocurrency mm -hmm. is a perfect example of short term overhype. You know, we had this huge balloon of value, I guess, that was all just hype based and burst a couple of years ago. And that was all just short term hype. It wasn't that the technology was actually doing anything, it was all speculation. However, like now, you know, you have like pretty serious banks and bankers and 
fund managers talking about how, you know, tokenizing, making currency into, or at least finances into blockchain is probably where things are going. And frankly, like it kind of makes sense because it does have this sort of like layer of evidence underneath it that makes a lot of sense moving into like a hyper digital world where things can be faked and, and that kind of thing. So, so I, even the one that feels the most overhyped, I think long-term is probably going to pan out, but I don't know, you know. It's interesting that you'd say that because um, I just had a a guest on the show for the last episode. Um, his name is Dr. Gant Worker, Eric Gant Worker. And he- Great name. Yeah. Um, his, one of his, he had many wonderful points, but one of his big points was AI is actually underhyped. And he oh, felt totally. we, we talked about the the hype cycle, but yeah, it's oh, like the I know what you're talking. Yeah, it's the hype cycle, like where technology yeah. comes in, it gets super hyped, then it disappoints, yeah. and then yeah. And mm -hmm. he was saying, you know, hey, this one's actually underhyped. Like, and the fact that you reiterated that is kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think if you take AI in particular, like it's already doing a ton yeah. of stuff. So, like, I've had COVID twice. I've taken Paxlovid. Paxlovid, the normal time to produce a drug like that is like four years or something and they did it in like six months and it was because the ai was able to like help them the ai i don't know if i should be <laughs> calling it that but they used ai to help them experiment more rapidly and find molecules that would be more on target so mm -hmm. their their hit rate was better basically and you know that's happening and we're not even calling it yeah you know and that's been happening for a long time in health it's been happening for a long time in tech like ai has been here we're just kind of the, the generative AI stuff is sort of we're lumping it all into that. Yeah, I think generative AI has made people very excited. There has been such a rapid level of change in technology, the relentlessly new piece that it's almost constant and it requires us to just rapidly transition, which is like come somewhat fatiguing, right? You've spoken about this phenomenon before, the increasingly rapid tra transition from nice to have to can't ignore what do you see the impact of this as? Yeah, so that that phrase actually comes to me from a, an amazing colleague uh, named Glenn Fajardo. And he works at Stanford and elsewhere to see how learning or how tech can show up in different learning environments. So he's very interested in like, what's the impact of when we put a technology into this learning situation, what happens? And he kind of stumbled on this idea of uh, technology moving from nice to have to can't ignore, which basically means when something first comes out, it feels kind of interesting and new, and maybe some people are early adopters, but not so many people have kind of adopted it that it matters or that you must sort of pay attention to it when you need to pay attention to it, which usually happens when enough people have adopted it, it gets to this can't ignore stage. And when I think about the can't ignore stage is that that's the point where opting out becomes a decision. You're either just opting in or you're saying actively, I'm not going to use it. Whereas in the nice to have stage, you know, you can use it or not. You might not use it because you don't like it, or you might not use it because it's too expensive. It doesn't really matter. When it gets to the can't ignore stage, you're making a real choice and frankly, sometimes taking a big risk by not adopting. And the, his point is, and I really resonate with this, is that the sort of time distance between nice to have and can't ignore is getting shorter. And you can see that over time. Like if you look at adoption of landlines versus smartphones, it's like, 10x faster adoption with the smartphones. Yeah. And I really think that applies to education too, because as we see all of these emerging technologies, this generative AI and 
it keeps changing and growing. We are striving to understand them and wrap our heads around and implement them, innovate with them, um, be timely with our adoption of these tools and with their evolution. But I think you've spoken to this. And I think the phraseology that you have used is, you know, that feeling of never up to speed. Yeah, that's right. One of my favorite things to talk about right now. Um, So that's looking at emerging tech, but really focusing on the emerging side, the speeding up. And because, you know, that that gap is getting shorter from introduction to full adoption, or at least the feeling of having to use it, it puts us in a situation where so much is coming at us, so much newness, so much relentless newness that we are never up to speed, which has this really nice acronym, which is N-U-T-S, never up to speed, which is nuts. And the idea is it's it's making us nuts a little bit. You know, I think the emergence is pushing on our psyches and that constant like, oh my gosh, now I have to respond to this thing. Now I have to respond to this thing. It just puts you in this constant state of reactiveness. And that can be very emotionally taxing. And the concern there for me is that most decision-making they're showing in studies, there's a guy here at Stanford named uh, Baba Shiv who does a lot of work. Um, Antonio Damasio down at USC does a lot of this work where a lot of decisions really come out of an emotional place. You know, it's like 90% emotion. And then we kind of reason after we make the emotional decision. And so if emotions are making our decisions and we're getting more and more hyped, we're getting more and more emotional, that puts us in, you know, not necessarily a bad place. I can make a good decision if I'm heightened emotionally. That's what they're for, actually. But I think it puts us in a precarious place because I think you do tend to make better decisions. And there's evidence of this too. You make better decisions when you're in a, you know, a more calm emotional state or like a more level emotional state. You know, they call it level-headed for a reason. Right. Yeah. Well, and the the point about the rapid decision making, but also the rapid changes in technology, and then also the rapid effects of the technology, I think those all go together, right? Like, so maybe we are making decisions rapidly, but we also are seeing impacts rapidly. So that allows us to make better decisions rapidly than maybe we could have about things we didn't know about. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, that, that like, so, so one thing I'll say about the, the nuts thing is that it's not that it's negative emotion, right? Like there are two ways, there are two colloquialisms with the word nuts that um, factor in here. And one is that's making me nuts. Like, oh, that sound of the fork scraping on your plate is driving me nuts. You know, it really is making me anxious or not or off kilter. But then there's another one, which is like, oh, I'm nuts about that band. I love that song. So I'm overexcited about a thing. So in general, it can be positive or negative over underexcited, but it's that it's elevated. And I think you spoke about this before, that we also see the effects of these uh, rapidly changing technologies sooner than we used to. And so because of that, perhaps rapid decision making that happens because of the rapidness of technology is somewhat warranted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think actually, so this would be like a silver lining kind of situation, right? So yes, things are coming at us relentlessly. Yes, things are moving more quickly. Yes, that's putting us off kilter emotionally. But at the same time, we're able to kind of see what's coming more immediately. So we should, or we might be able to adjust more fluidly um, because I can you know, see the effect 
sometimes oddly sort of almost before the cause. You know what I mean? It's like, it's happening so fast. You, it's almost like people are reacting to what's coming and then it comes and we've already kind of pre-reacted to it. So as an example, if you take say climate change, you know, we were making mistakes over a hundred years ago that led, then led to what now has been 50 years really of uh, climate change. And, you know, had we seen signals of that earlier, would it have allowed us to respond earlier? Whereas social media, that, that timeline is more like 10 years, right? Like we've had social media come out. There's now an assumption that uh, it's creating mental health issues. And, you know, that took about 10 years to figure out. But say with something like generative AI, which, well, actually the New York Times is already um, suing OpenAI to figure out the IP situation, right? And the, it's only been around for a year. So we're kind of dealing with the effects right away, which I think is healthy, you know, like my, in, a, in a health standpoint, it might be like being able to diagnose a disease earlier is always more effective at treatment. And I do think the speed allows us to diagnose things earlier because we can see the, see the effects right away. Yeah. Now it's moving more quickly, so that makes it a little difficult, but, um, but there is a silver lining, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I've encountered many professionals in a variety of education roles who have a lot of trepidation about AI, of course, from concerns that it will negatively impact learning to really about the educators themselves becoming obsolete. One thing I really want to learn more about is how we shift this to foster a culture of curiosity, exploration, innovation, rather than sort of fear and, oh, I'm overwhelmed, so I'm just going to opt out kind of. Yeah, I think that's, 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 uh, you know, that's to some degree, that's the million dollar question. And I will say that to frame it in terms of the making us nuts stuff, educators are kind of just being asked to like implement, implement, implement. And I think that is the emotions of, oh my gosh, the relentlessness, the emotions that leaders are having, I have, we all have, are saying, react, 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 we got to do it, we got to do it, we got to do it. And I think the key actually is to kind of almost become Zen with the never up to speedness, right? And just be like, okay, we're in now in a situation where it's impossible to know what comes next. And so how do you operate in a situation where you don't know what's coming next? And you use the word like, curiosity and discovery. I think a lot of it is like not worrying about being right, but worrying about how you figure things out. So more attention, less attention, maybe I don't this feels I'm not so sure about this, but like maybe a little less attention on expertise and a little more attention on discovery. Um, maybe running smaller trials more quickly versus implementing at the large scale right away. Try and experiment, not even at the level of a classroom, but at the level of an assignment, mm -hmm. you know, like let's give an assignment where students can do whatever they want with generative AI. And then let's debrief it afterwards. And what did they do and how did it help their learning? How did it hinder their learning? Get input from the students and run that over like a three week assignment. So you can kind of feel it and then do exactly the opposite. Do the opt out, do the opt in, and maybe even do something in between, but do it at the level, a much smaller level. I, of course, I don't know. Like, I, just like you, yes. I'm willing to say, I do not know. My gut tells me that we, um, that it's not wrong to go invest invest your time in this because it's not going to go away and it's only just going to get more developed right it's only going to yeah. be more intelligent i was just listening to a talk by um dr ethan Molik and he said this is the worst ai you're ever going to use and that resonated with me like it's 
going to be different. Right. It's so true. And you can say that, that. I love that because usually it's the other way around. Like every iPhone release is the best one ever. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's true. And every, every, every release is also like the worst one. It's just going to get better from here. I think that's so great. You know, we've been talking about this like overreactiveness. And I think when we were sort of prepping for this, you asked a question that was about, um, you know, being overreactive. Like, is, it, is that what it's about? And I think, and, and this, I think, could factor into like, how do you handle it as an institution or how do you handle it as an individual leader, it being the emerging tech. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think there's a thing where the sort of reactiveness or the, at least the um, responsiveness at the level of how, you know, how you do things is really important because like the new tools are coming in, new ideas are coming in. A lot of your students or whoever you're working with are already experimenting with these things. So new mm-hmm. ideas are coming up and being flexible around the how I think is really important. But if you're over flexible on the why, if you're over flexible on like the sense of purpose, why you're doing something, what it's for in terms of outcome, uh, the sort of meaning behind it, I think that's where we can get into trouble. That's where we become just reactive, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, what's the new tool doing? Let's do what the new tool's doing. What's the new thing doing? Let's do that. Versus, oh, we're still trying to do this. I'm going to be sort of at least sort of inflexible in my why. And then really negotiate with the change to see, you know, how can I implement a new how to do that why even better. And then, you know, occasionally your values change, your why's change, but those should change at a slower pace, I think, than the how, if that makes sense. I wonder, do we, as um, when I say we, I'm thinking of my colleagues and as educators, have any power to use our why's to define the future evolution of a lot of these technologies? Because I some people may feel very passive in what's happening and not feel like they have a role because they don't know how to code AI. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. And uh, uh, another colleague of mine, Chris Carter, who's the academic director at uh, the D school, she has a nice sort of tagline for that, which is you don't need to know how to code. You need to know what the code can do. And I'll have a metaphor to kind of explain that. I, the way I think about that is it's saying that like, there are certain things that are important to pay attention to so that you can use the technology or even develop the technology, you know, create the technology in a way that you want to, but that doesn't mean you have to know like every line of code. I mean, especially with things like Copilot, right? The, but the metaphor I would use is like surfing, right? Like I don't need to know fluid dynamics to ride a wave. (laughs) I just need to know how to balance and I need to know when I can find out if it's going to be a good wave or not. And I need to know, you know, how quickly to get up on a board and I need to know, you know, where the reef is so I can either use it for better waves or avoid it for an accident, you know? So there are very, you know, there is an expertise there is a lot to get up to speed on, but you don't have to know it top to bottom to be able to use it or even develop it. I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs are technical, you know, a lot of the people creating this stuff, but a lot of them are not. I mean, I, I don't think I might be wrong, but I don't think like Sam Altman say is a technical person, right? I think his background is in um, startup incubators. So I'm sure he has some technical acumen, but I think he's primarily a business person. I might be a little bit wrong about that. I'm not sure. 
but here's the person kind of helming the biggest move in this whole space. And you can't really imagine that he doesn't have agency here. Right. But I don't think he's like a, a super duper technical person. Well, yeah. And you don't need, you don't necessarily have to know how to create it to come up with ideas for what you want to use it for or what you wish it could do. And you don't necessarily need to know how to, but you do need to engage with it to come up with ideas on what it might, because if you don't understand what its potential already is, how can you imagine what's beyond it, right? Or even how to use it in a novel way. You know, they have to experience yeah. it for a while before they realize it's not that it can go beyond that. There's right. you're still using your old framework, you know, around. right. Yeah. And actually, that framework is really important. Like, I, I do think the way that we frame things, like if you listen to an argument between two people, oftentimes, you know, sometimes it's about the facts. Let's put it that way. But oftentimes it's just about the interpretation. You know, one person saying, my mental model of the situation is this. Another person saying, my mental model of the situation is this. And we're trying to convince each other that we have the right mental model, you know? And I think actually thinking, really interrogating how you think about a thing. I don't want to get too meta here, but like that's sort of the key, right? Like, am I thinking about you know, people have used ChatGPT as like a calculator for words. Well, that metaphor says like, oh, this is totally a tool. You know, we have control over it. It will do what I what it, what we want it to do. And it's offloading tasks that we don't want to do. Mm-hmm. So that like highlights all that stuff, but it hides a bunch of stuff where you have these other people are saying like, no, you know, AI or, or the prospect of general AI. Mm-hmm is is kind of um like a nuclear energy moment where yes it's super powerful but it could lead to total destruction and it's an existential crisis and you know and that mental model i'm not saying one's right and the other it's not but that mental model is like oh my god let's worry about like where this could go what happens if it goes gets out of hand and it doesn't look at well what's the benefit of this how could this be useful even if you take something like the ability of data collection to sort of manipulate people or be able to see into details of people that we can't even see. Um, That can be terrible, right? It could be used, you know, it can be used one to like sell us things we don't want and kind of controls that way. Also, it can be used to diagnose disease. Also, it can be used to help us with uh, psychological issues. Also, it can be used to, to understand if we're learning or not and, and kind of create different tutors, like personalized tutors, right? So like none of the, all this stuff, there's a guy named Melvin Kranzberg, who was a a historian back in the mid century, the mid 1900s, we can say, he had these laws of technology. And the first one is technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. (laughs) And you're like, what does that mean? Well, he's, I think this is my interpretation. He's just saying like, you know, it has good and bad in it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, those things come out in some situations differently than others. So context really matters. And 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 how we see it will dictate how we find and utilize that potential or or the potential peril, you know. Well, and I think that leads to I'm having um, trouble hearing. Can oh, you say that again? Look at that. My Siri. She thought I was Siri. Alexa. <laughs> Alexa, um, I okay, it. we'll cut that out. 
I don't know. That might be, that might, we might need to keep that in there. Hilarious. <laughs> yeah. um, it's very on, it's on uh, topic. It say. is, definitely. Yeah. Um, with all of the technological advancements, um, there is so much excitement and there is so much fatigue and people are trying to wrap their head around, how do I, how do I cope with this? How do I engage with this in a way that's productive? How do we increase our adaptability skills and ability to respond? Too, um. yeah yeah so i wouldn't make a distinction too in there which I, which which you mentioned um which is the the difference between sort of reacting and responding and that thing of like reacting is just completely giving in to the thing coming at you so it's like completely context focused mm -hmm. and you know stasis is like total disregard for content whatsoever and i see responding as kind of between the two of those where it's like you do have some things that you're sort of that are non-negotiables at least for a time and you do have things that you're not changing you know like how do you how do you react while staying true to yourself that's what responding is um so again i think like the key is for me anyway is like accepting this never up to speedness saying then okay i need to operate in ignorance which frankly we always do all the time like none of us is an omniscient being last time i checked so yeah. uh, you know so we we've always had to do this it's nothing new it just kind of feels more the stakes are higher or you know it's more tense and then there are tons of tactics you know what i mean like the the general thing is the learning how to learn kind of trope which is i think is a brilliant one like focusing on what are the processes or methods or skills that I use to be able to discover versus like how am I knowledgeable about a certain topic? Now, being knowledgeable helps you discover because it gives you a frame of mind that can help with that, but not letting the kind of preconceived notions get in the way of what might be around. Again, on the emotional thing, I think it's just like trying to stay calm in the face of all this. And that's hard for me. So it's a little bit you know, unfair of me to ask that of anyone because I struggle <laughs> with it. Um, the thing I mentioned about, uh, you know, sort of adapting to turbulence by doing things a little bit differently. Uh, airline pilots, when they're in turbulence, they adjust to be able to fly through turbulence and fly in ways that they wouldn't normally if it was clear skies. So that that kind of stuff, doing things you don't normally do, leaning, you know, letting the wind guide you, letting air push you up and stay at higher altitude rather than you know, getting lower because mm -hmm. you know you're eventually going to come back down, that kind of thing. This figuring out what you need to pay attention to, which I think has a lot to do with shifting mental models, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, am I looking at this the right way? Or just like, okay, that's true if I look at it that way. Is there another way to look at it that might make something else pop out? You yeah, know? I, think, I think what, you know, circling back to some things you said before and mm -hmm. echoing what you're saying right now, what I'm hearing is that critical thinking and reflection is like super important right now. Practicing critical thinking can improve your critical thinking and then can make you make it less taxing, actually, if you're if you're doing it more often. <laughs> yeah, it's like metacognition is like you have to think and think about how you're thinking, which then, yep. you know, it, it does. I mean, it literally is like another layer on top of it. Right. It's like, oh, if we can think about what we're doing as we're doing it, we can learn a lot more quickly, you know. Um, yeah. And so so I think, though, it is hard. I think it actually pays off really well. Well, I think it also sets you up in a mindset that and also, you know, that turbulence analogy you used of becoming 
but becoming comfortable with not being the expert, which I think you mentioned earlier, learning how to be comfortable being vulnerable and not knowing everything. Get comfortable with not being right. And then getting comfortable with acknowledging that you're not right and getting comfortable with changing what you were thinking you were going to do because you realize you're not right. And, and the thing is, it's like no one, none of us are expert on what's to come. You know, we might have a lot of expertise that's going to be very useful looking for it. I'm not anti-expertise at all, but but I think it's naive to think that anyone is an expert on what's to come, but we can get good at anticipating and we can get good at responding and we can get good at owning our mistakes. You know, so that's, I think that's the, that's the kind of thing is we can become experts at navigating the future. I don't think we can become experts at predicting it. We have a book that we put out called Navigating Ambiguity, written by Andrea Small and Kelly Schmoody, who work with, with and at the D-School. Uh, and there's some research from University College London, I want to say is around 2015, where they use a video game. I won't get into the details of it because it's very specific. But what they showed to some degree was that people are often more comfortable with a known bad outcome than they are with an unknown outcome. So, and then that they feel that concern of uncertainty, almost like pain, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so there's this thing of like, we don't like uncertainty. It doesn't feel good. So admitting uncertainty kind of calls it out. And then that puts us in an awkward place. And if I say, I don't know, and you, you, you don't say you don't know right. that I'm, I'm being vulnerable and you're not or vice versa. And so there is like a barrier to getting to this. I don't knowness together. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think when we get there, it just opens up a ton of opportunity, right? Like, like that, I don't know actually creates opportunity because you're then looking to see to discover right like you're looking to find out you're trying to explore you're interested in in what could be versus trying to you know be right about what is and so i think like not knowing or that's actually helpful positive and exciting right there's more to see there's more to come there's more to discover um, I, you, I love to say, I don't know, but let me see if I can find out more. So I think great. that's, you know, I hope other people love that too. With all of this, I feel like we're in a new technological primordial soup or ooze, and it's a rapid evolution impacting all of us, which we've just talked about and extensively. How do you see AI impacting education on, well, a global scale, an international scale, really any scale that you want to talk about? And in what other ways do you see AI, AI changing the education landscape? Yeah, first of all, that's a great visual. I love that. <laughs> Secondly, I'm a little reluctant to make uh, predictions just because I, you know, I don't know. But I, I think what I can do is sort of um, point at things that are happening and then also like throw some things out there to see if they resonate, you know, sort of point and provoke for, for rather than predict. But I think there are a few things. There's a great article in uh, the Chronicle of Higher Ed last year, sort of maybe toward the end of the year, they had an AI issue that you can check it out. I think the student's name was um, Owen, Owen Terry, maybe. Um, and he basically was saying like, I'm a student and I use ChatGPT and you'll never find out. <laughs> and 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 you're like, wow, that's bold. But then what he did, what he did was go in there and talk about how he uses it. And he's like, I don't use it to write my essay. I use it to help me write the essay. Um, and it was in a in a pretty like 
aggressive way. He's like, you know, I have it. Tell me the process. I tell it to dissect the article or the topic for main points. I have it create an outline for me. I have it, you know, and then I write the essay. So I think there's something really interesting in that. Like from my metaphor growing up in like, you know, the 80s and 90s, it's sort of more cliff cliffs notes for them i think than it is the you're paying the person to write your essay thing you mm-hmm. know and i think a lot of times we kind of think of it as we're paying the person to write our essay model versus the cliff notes model and you know i'm not i think cliff notes are they don't necessarily help with learning and they kind of become a shortcut where like hard work could pay off um so you want to unpack what that is right like you're you're sort of um what what is he doing there right so in some sense i think there's this collaborator nature to it that's pretty interesting and if we can focus kind of energy on the collaborator nature mm-hmm. i think there's like a lot of possibility mixed up in there now there's there's problems too um you know and there are a bunch of folks who are doing stuff like that i know khan academy has this uh sidekick kind of tutor i haven't used it so i think it's called conmigo but it it's like yeah i haven't used it but there's something about that idea of like you know we're gonna scale personalized tutoring i mean that's amazing amazing. (laughs) yeah and i try i have to check myself a lot because like you know when you get sort of Luddite like, and I do a lot, sometimes that that comes from like a little bit of a place of privilege, right? Like I I can afford to not have the help that this tech could give. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're thinking about it as like, oh, well, we want to expand healthcare access. Like, it's hard to argue that this won't do that right. and that that's not valuable, you know? <laughs> you know, there are good ways to use this too. And I think scaling um, conversation can be bad because I think like people could lose jobs over that, but can be good because I think it will give people access to things that they may not, you know, scaling right now, a conversation. So like if I need a tutor, that's a paid thing. More recently, we can get it online, but it used to be a paid thing in person. So my access to smart people and money to pay them was the barrier to me actually getting help. And this could lower the barrier to getting help. So I think that's amazing. So I I think this sort of like looking at it really as conversational versus content creation, Mm -hmm. and then trying to find all the opportunities where, where does that conversation help in a student's learning journey? You know, I've, I've heard some proclamations of homework is dead, you know, kind of thing. And that may mitigate that as well. Like maybe the answer also lies in rethinking what it means to what are learning activities? What is the purpose of homework? What are we going to do that it isn't just write an essay breakdown? Like what, what are you trying to accomplish? And what do we, what is the point? And what is the psychology behind why we used to do these things? And what could we do to still achieve that goal? Yeah. And, and yeah. And I think like changing the, the, so having that goal and having the values, that's what I'm talking about with the responsiveness. If you have that intent, then your reactions, if they're in service of that intent, become responsive because you're not just giving in to contextual shifts. You're trying to make something happen and using the context to get there. So I think that's just totally key. And to me, uh, there's a big question of like, how do we scale personalized help? How do we scale conversational interactions? How do we scale thinking rather than just scaling production? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, there is a really interesting thing where it's clear that generative AI is making 
production of certain types of content, anything basically that a computer can deliver on a screen, it's making that production of that faster. Mm -hmm. And so that then I think might push people out of content production roles and into more editorial managerial directoral roles, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying like, well, you could make a leap there. Mm-hmm. And then if you think about that, well, then if, if jobs are more about discernment, decision-making and process flow, what does that mean for education? Like, I really do think, you know, a class on decision. So I'm much more interested in the the effect than the tech, right? Mm -hmm. So if the effect is, it's going to put us into this more decision-making mode, should we be having classes that are just about decision-making? Like, how do you make a decision really? Like, not a topic at all in terms of like a content area, history, art, science, just decisions or discernment or collaboration or workflow. You probably already have these anyway. (laughs) Totally. Well, I mean, like, how did no one teach me (laughs) decision-making? Like, in my whole life, you know, it's so strange because that's like, what's the main thing you do all day, no matter what you're doing, it's make decisions. But yeah, so I think, I think it could shift not just how technology is used, but what needs to be taught, right? Do you have any examples of AI that in education that are inspiring to you or that you're excited about? There's, um, and I think actually um, she's going to be speaking at uh, the symposium you all are holding in, in March. Um, Leticia Bertos Cavagnaro, who I work with, uh, is bringing conversation into learning and using AI to scale conversations and also using AI to develop people's own learning versus offloading it as a production assistant kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And she has a thing called Riff that is about, she wrote a book on reflection called Experiments and Reflection. It's about a bot that helps you reflect on your learning as you go. And we're using it in classes at Stanford. And But it's really fascinating because she kind of pushes the students to do this metacognition that we've been talking about, right? And in a way that makes it a little bit easier to do and a little bit more valuable and uh, has the ability to do it, you know, at whatever scale is needed. It's really exciting stuff. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, the idea that you could like scale reflection in a way that's not just like, you know, giving you a list of things to think about. It's actually an interactive uh, and bespoke or sort of personalized things. Really, really exciting. One of the things I've been thinking on that's sort of like the next thing is, you know, I think the thing that's been underestimated in say the last three decades is how much the spread of information has changed the meaning and the usefulness of everything. You know, we were in the we're in the information age. Mm-hmm. And I still don't think we've totally reckoned with that. Mm-hmm. And there are different ways to look at that. Marshall McLuhan, the uh, media theorist from again, like the mid-century uh 1900s, 1950s, 60s, he had a thing of like, we should bring the questions into the schools because the answers are everywhere. Right. And the, so that's like, and I don't think we've caught up to that yet. And now we're on the next one. Like that, the information thing is ship has sailed. We're now on something which is like, I don't know what to call it. Like, is it the transformation age? Is it the cognition age? Like there's some other thing going on where it's like, actually these things are, are thinking for us and we're altering biology and it's, you know, like, what are we going to call that? And what is that going to bring 
so that we can kind of catch up more quickly, you know, because <laughs> the information age brought this thing of like the ubiquitous information changes power dynamics, changes everything. Um, and we're still not adjusting to it. So I kind of want us to adjust to this one in more healthy ways, you know, but I don't know exactly what it is yet. It has something to do with cognition or transformation or, you know, why my colleague and I who wrote a book call it runaway design, but that doesn't quite capture the nature of it, but there's, there's something, there's something going on. And I would love it if we could define that sooner rather than later. Well you know. said, well, thank you so much for, yeah. for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. It was so great to talk to you and uh, thanks so much for reaching out. Today's podcast was edited by Jaquan Leonard. If you have any ideas for upcoming episodes or would like to send an email, contact us at edufi at mayo.edu.